Live from Chatterbox Sports Studios, it's Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman. Well, good morning, good morning, and welcome to Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers. I'm Tom Brenneman. We come your way each and every day from 10 a.m. until noon. You can follow us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Tom Brenneman TV. And, of course, um, we stream live on Facebook and on YouTube slash Chatterbox Sports. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your neighbor, everybody and his brother. We'd love to hear from you and, and hope you'll check out the show and hope you enjoy it. Today's show is going to be fun. We have uh, my dad, Marty Brenneman, coming up here shortly. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Reds today. I know we, we, we kind of, you know, lighten it up and, and that kind of thing most of the time with him. But um, today... A little more serious conversation uh, about the Reds and the future of the Cincinnati Reds. And then today is the uh, maiden voyage of the big interview. We call it every single Wednesday. We'll try and track down some of the biggest stars, biggest names in sports. Actually, this is our second week. I take that back. We had one of the biggest names in the history of football last week was our inaugural guest in Anthony Munoz, a Hall of Fame offensive tackle. And uh, today we have um, Sean Casey. Can't wait for that. All right, the Bengals begin preparations for the Dallas Cowboys. That'll take place today at Paycor. Sunday's game is on CBS. That's a 425 game, so that means it's Nance and Romo on the call. Big national game. Cooper Rush will start for the injured Dak Prescott at quarterback for the Cowboys. Prescott had surgery yesterday on that thumb he injured against Tampa Bay, and uh, he's not going on injured reserve. So that means Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, telling the media yesterday he believes that Jones is a quick healer, and they think he might be back within four weeks. We'll see how that goes. Now, you want to talk about tough guys? How about the Steelers' T.J. Watt, right? He gets a second opinion, a third opinion on a torn pec. Now, the pecs, that thing, you know, some guys have them. I don't have them. Maybe you have them. Those big things, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're pulling down the bar and everything and you get them down on the sides there and they stick out, you know, you look good walking around the pool or on the beach or by the river or whatever. And um, he tore that thing in the game against the Bengals. He is not going to have surgery. He said, I'm playing. He'll be out six weeks. Tough dude. College football, UC and Miami will play at Paycor Stadium this week. That is a noon kick on Saturday. The Ohio State Buckeyes will get two of their big stud receivers back this week. They're All-American. Jackson Smith and Jigba injured his hamstring in the first quarter in week one against Notre Dame. Did not play the rest of that game. Did not play last week. They expect him back uh, this week against Toledo. And then Julian Fleming, who they think is going to be another great star, uh, really at what has turned into wide receiver university there at Ohio State with Marvin Harrison Jr. and Abuka and all these guys running around. But Fleming will play in his first game of the year. Speaking of the Fighting Irish, their starting quarterback, Tyler Buckner, will miss the rest of the year due to surgery on his non-throwing shoulder. He had not thrown a touchdown pass through two games this year. The Irish are 0-2. Drew Pine will start in his place this week against Cal. And this is a big game for Notre Dame because the next two teams on the docket, North Carolina, who can't stop anybody, but man, can North Carolina score? And then number 12, BYU, and that is a road game for Notre Dame. In basketball news, 
The Phoenix Suns owner, Robert Sarver, was suspended by the NBA for one year and fined $10 million after a year-long investigation for multiple violations in the workplace, including the use of racial slurs, sexually uh, related comments. Not good. And that's a great franchise with a phenomenal fan base. Jerry Colangelo, where are you now? And lastly, the Reds lost both games of a doubleheader yesterday to the Pittsburgh Pirates, one of the few teams with a worse record than the Cincinnati Reds in Major League Baseball. The Reds managed one run in 18 innings against the Pittsburgh Pirates. So as promised, we'll take a break. When we come back, we will visit with Marty Brenneman and, and get his thoughts on what's going on down there at Great American Ballpark and, and who knows what else he might be interested in talking about. So Marty coming up next, Sean Casey a little bit later on. Great to have you with us. This is Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers. Back in a flash. The time is now. Football season is back here in the Queen City. And week one, St. X versus Lakota West. DJE train here with Chatterbox. It's about to go down. It's our kickoff of our official tour. Every Friday night, you'll see us. Let's go. one I mean I couldn't have asked for a better first one because Coda West struggling a lot throughout the first uh, first half and beginning of second half and then big time it's a party it's a party it's a party I know one thing ain't nobody does this better than us facts yeah this uh, atmosphere was insane show was on point everybody had a great time for the first one too bringing people together big shout out to everybody tonight that worked hard from chatterbox and everywhere else put on a great show 
This dude's legit. And he's sweating, so you know he's legit. <laughs> I know one thing, ain't nobody does this better than us. Facts. All right, welcome back to Off the Pre Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers. I mean, we're a week and a half in. I can't even remember the name of the show. I always log onto a, a, a website regularly to get news called Off the Press. And, uh, and I almost said Off the Press. We're off the bench. We're waiting for Marty Brenneman to get off the bench. Uh, I walked nine holes with him yesterday. Uh, we weren't playing. We were watching uh, my son, his grandson, play golf yesterday for the high school team. Beautiful day out there yesterday. And uh, we had a great time. But I told him, I said, look, uh, what is this tired internet connection deal? Because I keep saying I'm going to get over there and help him get it fixed up. But um, I don't think I had the right cord. So I'm going to have to check that out and, uh, and make sure that we can get him the right cord, whatever that is, because I think he said he does it off his iPad. So we'll get to that in a minute. But we are going to talk about um, the Reds a little bit uh, when he's able to join us. And, um, you know, we haven't talked much about the Reds over the last week and a half since this show began. And look, and nobody else is talking about him, right? I mean, it's been a rough year. They started poorly. They played well for a while, for about you know, a month, month and a half, right around 500. Actually played pretty darn well for about a month, month and a half. Um, and, and now all of a sudden they're back in the throes of a, of a lengthy uh, spell where they're not playing good baseball at all. We mentioned they dropped the doubleheader to the Pirates yesterday. Now the Pirates have a worse record than the Reds. 
And a lot of people around here that do talk about the Reds are saying, well, it looks like they won't lose 100. And all that's fine and dandy, but the question is, you know, what happens when you're looking ahead to next year? Because I think we all agree. Uh, when you look at these young starting pitchers and you look at Lodolo and Ashcraft and, uh, and you look, of course, at Hunter Green, um, there's a lot to get excited about. But we talked about this um, a little bit a couple of weeks ago about um, teams that you'll see it frequently. They'll go through a cycle where they have a group of position players that come up together that are very talented, but, but, but the pitching doesn't match it. Or a flip-flop. Okay, that's where the Reds are. They have some really good-looking players um, in their rotation, pitchers they have uh, for the future. Don't know about the bullpen so much, but certainly starting pitchers. And then, uh, but you look at the position players, and, and it just doesn't seem like it matches up. Uh, and we're going to talk to Marty Brenneman about that here in a minute. Are we good to go? Apparently, that tired internet connection of his has not allowed us to get yeah, video. We're... Uh... But we're, we're going to put them on audio. Yeah, we're going to have them on audio right here. All right. That is a picture right there of the Hall of Famer, Marty Brenneman, in one of his uh, three or $400 shirts. Do you spend that much money on a shirt? Uh, he... that, that's a personal question. Well, I know it's a personal question. I'm your son, so I'm asking you a personal question. Well, you're asking me publicly whether I've spent three or $400 on a shirt. Have I ever done that? The answer would be yes. Do I do it lately since I've been retired? I'm living on a fixed income now, so oh, I can't do that anymore. Please. Good Lord. Yeah, oh, well, God. you asked me the question. And by the way, before I forget it, yeah, I heard the comment you made day before yesterday about that you wanted people to feel sorry for you. And the fact that uh, in the middle of the night, one of your big dogs jumped up and hit you in your chin. Yeah, not and good. It, it was essentially a semi-sob story in front of the people who watch you. That's another reason why you have little dogs. Not that you have big monstrosities. You understand me? Well, Oliver is not a big dog. I mean, not as small as Millie, obviously, but 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 Oliver's not a big dog. He's 45, whatever he is, 45 pounds. And I startled him dog. in the middle of the night. I startled him. And and he was asleep, and he pops his head he up. Startled he startled you, too. What boy, did he ever. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got, you remember years ago, I, I actually have, and I, I was telling Polly, my wife, you know, my entire chin, and I wish it, oh, when, I when, when I broke it many, many years ago, I fell in a hotel room in the middle of the night back in, I think, 1990 or 91, and I broke my jaw and broke my chin, and there's this, there's this metal plate in my chin, uh, and I thought when he first hit that thing for the next couple of days, I, I thought he had, he had messed that thing up, but hopefully not. I wish they'd have given me yeah. a real chin when they did it. I hear you. Yeah. Hey, I want yeah. to ask you on a serious note about the Reds. Yeah. Um, and let me start by saying or asking, I know you're a big fan of Nick Crawl and what he's capable of doing, right? Yes, I am. Why? Well, because I, I think that, you know, he's operating under some constraints, uh, whether or not those constraints still exist in terms of who he can trade and who he can't trade. Um, 
obviously, I don't think that that's gone away because of the moves that he made leading up to the trade deadline. Um, I, I truly believe, and, and this is a crapshoot, I, I understand that, that whenever you trade veteran players who have had some uh, measure of success and you get a bunch of untested uh, quote-unquote prospects, many of them turn out to be suspects and many of them turn out to be guys that are also Rams. Uh, you're rolling the dice because no matter how high a prospect you might get from, uh, say, the Seattle Mariners in, in the trade that the Reds made for Winker and Suarez uh, and then later Castillo, you're still giving up uh, you're still receiving kids that even though they might be a number two pick in the entire organization that they're coming from, they may never pan out. Yeah. And I understand that. But I feel very confident that the trades he made, uh, without exception, are deals that are down the road going to uh, be fruitful as far as this organization is concerned and getting them back on the right track again. Hey, let's face it, Tom, this team's not going to go out and spend a lot of money. Uh, to sign free agent ball players, so the only way they're going to do a rebuild is to do what they finally done after years and years in which they've said we're rebuilding, but in reality they weren't. Uh, so I think they made a commitment. I think Nick Crawl's a guy that can get it done, and I'm 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 satisfied with him. I got to tell you, uh, Dad, and I was talking about this before you came on, and and I talked about it a week ago, and and, and you remember. Um, when the Chicago Cubs, now we're talking a different animal, a, a big market team, big money, all those kinds of things, although you wouldn't know it this year. Uh, right. but, but, but back when they had Anthony Rizzo and they had Javier Baez and they had Chris Bryant and they have all these guys that are coming up together, a great core of players, a, a, a core obviously that won a World Series. Their pitching did not match up with that, so they were able to go out and spend money to get the John Lester's and a deal for Jake Arrieta and so on and so forth. My fear of the Reds, and I think the challenge for Nick Crawl and the entire franchise is, everybody agrees they've got great-looking young starting pitchers. But where are the position players that you can honestly say are, are, are going to be impactful major league players and I'm not saying contending next year, but I'm just talking about guys that are going to be everyday players that you can write their name in a lineup for David Bell next year. Oh, if you're talking about the immediacy of this whole situation, I don't think you, anybody could realistically expect that you're going to, unless something incredibly uh, tumultuous occurs between the offseason and next season, that this team's going to be a contender, an impactful ball club in 2023. I don't think that can happen. And I think the position players you're talking about are down the road, many of whom are going to come from this crop of young, tested, untested uh, prospects that the Reds have received in trades that they've made. Um, if you look at this roster, <clears throat> I don't know that you can pick one player with the possible exception uh, for my money. Now, and I'm, I'm speaking with great prejudice because I've been a Kyle Farmer fan forever. Uh, is Kyle Farmer a superstar? No. Is he a hell of a leader? Yes, he is. Is he a team player? Without any question. Is he a veteran player? Damn right he is. I've been a big fan of Kyle Farmer's forever. I think you pencil him in at third base. And then you've got the kid at second base who I still think is going to be an outstanding player if he can stay healthy in Jonathan India. After those two guys, uh, if you plug Votto in at first base, but that's it. Um, uh, you'll have, Well, check that. You'll have Tyler Stevenson back behind the plate so but you've got other positions 
and, and, and whether they come from guys that are with the club now uh, or guys that they pick up through whatever manner is possible in the offseason, I don't know. But they've got a crop of guys they've played out of necessity uh, this season. I don't think that other than the ones that I've mentioned, I don't think that you can say any of those guys, T.J. Friedel, Jake Fraley, any of those guys are going to be everyday players in the big leagues, whether it be in Cincinnati or somewhere else. A problem I've had is they continue and continue and continue, and I understand why they do it, and that is to run Aristides Aquino out there and Jose Barrero at shortstop. These two young men, uh, and, and, and it's, it's been a pretty decent body of work to make a determination on whether or not they're going to hit big league pitching. And I don't see where there's any sign. Every now and then you'll see a little little splurge by one or both of them. It never lasts very long. Their degree of strikeouts is incredibly high. And at some point, uh, they're going to have to say, we've got to go in another direction. We've given these guys, guys as many shots as anybody could possibly give them and try and figure out what you're going to do with those positions come 2023. I know it's not your decision, but I know you have an opinion on it or a thought on it. Votto is uh, going to be coming into the final year of his contract in 2023. That's paid him a quarter of a billion dollars. He's been one of the great Reds in the history of the franchise. No question. But, but uh, he did not look good this year at all. I, not, not at all. Now, whether that was uh, in part because of injury that he didn't tell anybody, we're never going to know, and Votto's never going to tell anybody until maybe spring training of next year. Tyler Stevenson is hurt all the time. I mean, God bless this young man, but, but, but I don't know if I've ever seen a player in my life that has gone on the injured list more than, than Tyler Stevenson as such a young man in a very demanding and physical and brutal position. A lot of talk about him going to first base. You can't do it with Votto coming back next year, can you? No, I don't think you can. Um, and, you know, I, 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 whether you agree with it or not, when you have a player like Joey Votto and you've still got a, a year to go on the contract, you're pretty much going to let him dictate to you uh, what his future is going to be. Now, I give the Cardinals a lot of credit. They let Albert Pujols walk a couple of years ago. And, and, and go to the Angels, and thank God he's back with the Cardinals where he should be to finish his career. And he's on the verge of, of, of a possibly a 700-home run career. Uh, the Reds, uh, they've got Joey Votto, like it or not, for $25 million in 2023. And you're not going to bring Joey Votto back, um, and you're certainly not going to let him go. Uh, they're not going to take the heat from the Reds fans, and I know the Cardinals – took from uh, from uh, their fans when they let Pujols leave. Uh, so you're not going to keep a guy around making $25 million and set him on the bench. So you got to play him. And you got to hope like hell that what happened this year um, is uh, largely due to the injuries that he had to deal with, his shoulder and his elbow, and he continued to play through it and finally had the surgeries uh, on both areas of his body to, to hopefully clear this up. I know he takes a lot of encouragement from what Pujols is heading down the stretch toward, and that's a great finish to a Hall of Fame career. He made his comment as much yesterday, I think, on television. Um, but that's a price you pay, whether it's Joey Votto or whoever it might be, when you sign 10-year contracts, eight-year contracts, at some point, 
you're going to have a drop-off in offense. Now, from a personal standpoint, I really believe unless he can come back and have a big year in 2023 that Joey Votto has hurt his Hall of Fame prospects. I truly believe that. I have people all the time say to me, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. For my money, he's not. And I don't think he's helped himself by by going through the kind of seasons. You look at his numbers the last couple of years, not just this year. Uh, look at his numbers. That's not the type of, of, of the end of a career that a player who aspires to be in Cooperstown has. Now, again, if he comes back and has a big year in 2023, what happened this year and what happened in, in previous years when those seasons didn't measure up to the kind of years that you expect Joey Votto to have, uh, they will be forgotten. But if he's back in 2023 and, and there's no reason to believe that he's not, he's got to put up some big numbers. What did you think of the recent changes in the rules in Major League Baseball? We're going to ask Sean Casey about that a little bit later on today. What were your thoughts? Well, I know what Casey's going to say. He's going to love the, the, the banning the, the shift because he was a left-handed hitter, and and uh, those guys are just like this Christmas morning. I think that's the biggest joke of them all is banning the shift. Why? Uh, and, well, why make it easy for them? All the hell they've got to do is hit the ball the other way. They want to take the shift out of play, just hit the ball the other way. There's only one player in the history of baseball that said the history, the hell with the shift, I'm going to hit right into the teeth of it, and I'll show you who's better. And that was the greatest hitter in the history of the game in Ted Williams. He never went the other way against the Williams shift back in the 40s and, and the 50s. Uh, there ain't too many people around that I'm aware of that can do that today. But I think taking the banning the shift is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Now, the other two... Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the pitch clock, and I've big, been a big fan of that for the last three years. I think if they're looking for one single thing to speed up the play of the game and give the game back a rhythm that it has not had, and that is uh, bring in the pitch clock, what they've done. Increasing the size of the bases, uh, they think that's going to increase stolen bases. We'll see about that. I don't know. All baseball does is spin their wheels and try to come up with ideas that will bring back the fan and speed up the game and bring back uh, the, the rhythm of the game the way that we all knew it uh, at one time. And, and we'll see if this works. But I maintain that the pitch clock is going to do more for it than any other rule that they can impose upon the game now and in the future. Would you be in favor of uh, radar taking over in place of umpires, balls and strikes? I got. I don't know. That time, that's a that's a tough tough question. Yeah, I, it is. I, I don't I don't have an answer for that. I because I respect the job those guys do. I know that there are some bad umpires. There's no question about that. But the majority of these guys are really good. And I heard you make a comment about the percentages uh, when you look at the these websites on Twitter or whatever it is. They'll show you that these guys on any given night are somewhere between 96, 97, 98 percent right. On, on every pitch that they have to call behind the plate. I, I don't know. That's, that's, that's a hard question because I think you, you eliminate a part of the game that's been around for as long as this game has been played. And I just I have no answer for that question. I wish I did, but I don't. You were around during the Sosa-McGuire home run chase and how it rejuvenated, uh, electrified, whatever word you want to use, the sport when it needed it most. Um, 
and, and, and everybody and his brother, even if you were not a Cardinal fan or a Cub fan, you were a Sosa McGuire watch fan. Here you've got a guy in New York, biggest market in the country, and he hits 56 and 57 last night, and it seems like nobody cares. Well, you know why I think that is, Tom, because home runs are no longer a big deal in the game. Back in 96 and 97, before the advent of analytics and, and changing the game into nothing but home runs and strikeouts and walks, uh, what Sosa and McGuire did, even though both of them were allegedly juicers, the fact of the matter is it did capture the, the interest and the hearts of not only baseball fans, but sports fans all over the country. Home runs are no big deal anymore. I, it's sad to say that, but everybody hits home runs, whether it be a 175-pound second baseman or 250-pound guy. Uh, so nobody really cares about it. They're, they're so uh, inundated with home runs coming from every sector of the field in baseball that this is no longer that big a deal. And I really believe that's the single biggest reason why nobody's really paying a whole lot of attention to what Judge has done so far this season. And for my money... Um, he's as good an MVP candidate as there is in the American League. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't win the most valuable player award in the American League. But in terms of the interest of his home runs outside of the city of New York, I don't even think anybody cares. No, I, I don't. And were it not be for him being whatever he is, 6'5", 6'6", 6'8", 230 yeah. pounds, whatever it is, I'm not sure anybody would recognize him walking down the street. Um the last thing I want to ask you about it, it, now. Now here is a guy that that in, in Otani. When you look back in the history of this sport, and we all get wrapped up in the stats and all that kind of thing, but just the eye test, and yes, the stats too. What this guy Dad has done is 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 almost beyond belief. I'm not sure you could write this into, into some Hollywood movie script and, and not have people roll their eyes like nobody's ever going to be able to do that. He's doing it. I, I don't think we'll ever see it again. Um, he is truly unique uh, in what he has accomplished. Uh, when, when he first came and you know there was talk about, well, you know, you got to decide on one or the other. He's either going to be a pitcher or he's going to be a position player. And, and the angel said, no, you know, we're going to try and see if he's not able to do both. Well, I think he's pretty much put that to rest. Uh, he can do both. And he can go to the mound every five days and pitch his butt off. And then the other days he's hitting home runs and, and doing uh, things that we've never seen a player in the history of baseball do. And as I say, I don't, I don't know that we'll ever see another guy do that because th this game is so tough to play and play at a high level. Uh, if you're only a position player or you're only a pitcher, but to combine the two and be at the top of your game and the top of the game uh, in both areas is just unconscionable. And, and, but there again, uh, and sometimes I think this works against players. And I know, I think it does in college basketball. I think it does in college football playing on the West coast and if you're going to see Otani play, you got to hope one, it's going to be on ESPN or yep. whatever the case might be. And you got to stay up until 1030 or 11 o'clock at night to watch him play. And I think that really affects uh, the, the interest level uh, from from, you know, from the mountain region all the way to the East Coast. 
And I think that's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. But I agree 100% with you. I don't I don't think people, there are a lot of people in this part of the country that if you bring up his name, they'll say, yeah, you know, that's pretty good what he's doing. And not really give him his just due because it's unbelievable. All right, before I let you get out of here, um, big, big uh, pro football, college football weekend coming up. Um, and, and you have um, UC playing Miami, um, and then the Bengals on the road uh, in, in Big D on Dallas. That's the main national game on CBS. Nance and Romo and that crew will be on that game. Um, Marty Brenneman, have any thoughts on the Bengals, by the way, in that game last week against the Steelers? Well, I, I watched you yesterday and uh, heard all the folks from Brian Billick and Paul Doherty and and uh, and uh, the Houday kid, who I was really impressed with. First time I've been exposed to him, I thought he was spectacular. Um, I, yeah, I think, you know, the guy, Zach Taylor, made some major mistakes. Um, I, the most, the gross, the most, the major mistake was not looking at the replay on what was obviously a touchdown yep. that would have won the game for him. But you, you can go back and hash over yep. everything that happened. They got their butts whipped, and now they're going to go down to Dallas, and that's going to be an unmitigated ass kicking down there. I mean, they're going to beat up on Dallas like Jerry Jones has never dreamed about. <laughs> that's where it's going to be. I mean, I if I were Dallas, would you like I'd to be invited in. into Jerry Jones Skybox sometime? Would that, does that interest you at all? Hanging Not out with Jerry inch. Jones during a football game? Not one inch. You're kidding. He ought to be interested in hanging out with me. <laughs> How about I Robert him, Kraft? I some... yeah, now, I, I might be interested in that. Because okay. despite his indiscretions in the past, which were flat stupid, um, I, I, I'm impressed, you know, and I think he's a very powerful guy. I know Jerry Jones likes to think he might be the most powerful owner in the NFL. Uh, Robert Kraft could give him his, uh, give him a run for his money. Um, but I like, I like, uh, you see, I mean, uh, the Bengals to go down there and beat Dallas's brains out. And I heard you try to stir up that controversy yesterday involving uh, the Bryant kid and Evan Prater and, yeah. and we'll see how that whole thing pans out. I mean, I mean, Bryant's okay. And I understand Prater's a quarterback who has other talents that Bryant is a, is a pocket passer and all that. I understand all that. I think Bryant's going to be okay. I know everybody is pushing like the Dickens for the local kid to start, and I understand that. Uh, we'll see how it all plays out. All right, and lastly, how about your North Carolina Tar Heels? You've been pretty fired up about them so far. Well, you know what? They played uh, – actually, the win over Appalachian has turned out now to be yeah. a bigger victory than anybody dreamed of because yeah. they go down to Texas Station and beat Texas A&M uh, and create a major problem for Jimbo Fisher. Um, they're 3-0 and against some bad – some uh, Appalachian State and then two lesser knowns, Georgia State this past weekend. They have a major problem on defense. They sure have no problem on offense. Uh, with the May kid playing, Drake May playing quarterback, and and uh, the receivers that he has, and the running backs that Carolina has, they're going to score points. But I don't see where in the world uh, their defense is going to improve once they get into the meat of their their schedule, which all the all the so-called quote-unquote pushovers again, not including Appalachian State, uh, that's over with. 
And now they've got to really put up, and they have two weeks to get ready for the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame a week from Saturday. Well, that's where I was going to jump in. Uh, that game, I believe, is up in South Bend, Indiana. And with all your highfalutin friends through all these many, many years with tickets and and private jets and, and all that kind of thing, um, have you been invited to go up there for that game next week? See, all that stuff you said is stupid to begin with. But have I been invited to that game? The answer would be no. I'm going to Chapel Hill to see them play on November 4th against Georgia Tech. Okay. All right. Well, I yeah. figured Harry Fath or somebody like that who's a big league operator here no, in Harry's town. not even thought about picking up the phone and calling me and saying, would you like to fly up and see the game? Okay. And he's also a friend of yours, I might add. He, you know what? I, the, the guy does so much great stuff here in this greater Cincinnati area. He's one yes, of the great does. humanitarians uh, in this town, and um, and I think he's still on the uh, the board up there at Notre Dame. Maybe not anymore. I don't know. Um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks for your time. I you and I walked the course yesterday uh, with Luke. I'm going to try and get figured out how we can uh, get this um, this dial up service you have. We'll get it done. Uh, we'll get it done. Thanks for the time of day, Dad. All right, Tom. Enjoy it, buddy. All right. Love you. I'll see you later on. Love you too. Bye-bye. All right, that, that's uh, Marty Brenneman giving us uh, thoughts on anything and everything. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a break, and then we've got the big interview. And this week it is Sean Casey. I can't wait. I don't know about you. The mayor is coming up next on Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers. is now football season is back here in the queen city and week one st x versus lakota west dj you trained here with chatterbox it's about to go down it's our kickoff of our official tour every friday night you'll see us let's go I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better first one because Coda West, 
struggling a lot throughout the first uh, first half and beginning of second half, and then big time. It's a party. It's a party. It's a party. I know one thing. Ain't nobody does this better than us. Facts. Yeah, this uh, atmosphere was insane. Show was on point. Everybody had a great time for the first one, too, bringing people together. Big shout out to everybody tonight that worked hard from Chatterbox and everywhere else. Let's put on a great show. This dude's legit. And he's sweating, so you know he's legit. <laughs> I know one thing, ain't nobody does this better than us. Facts. Welcome back to Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers. Time for the big interview. Sean Casey grew up in Upper St. Clair, Wisconsin, the son of Joan and Jim Casey. He played collegiately at the University of Richmond. You'll hear in a minute the only school to offer him a chance to play baseball. Pretty good move by the Spiders. He won a triple crown in college, wound up a second-round pick by the Cleveland Indians in 1996. His first full year came in 1999 after a trade to Cincinnati, went to the All-Star Game, one of three of those in his career. Played nearly 14 years in 2006. Sean Casey played in the World Series for the Detroit Tigers. He's a member of the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame and is affectionately known all over the galaxy as the mayor. Please welcome one of our all-time favorites, Sean Casey. How are you this morning, brother? How's life treating you? What's up, Tommy? How you doing, man? How's everything? I want to correct one thing. I was I'm not from Wisconsin. It's Upper St. Clair, Pennsylvania. I thought I but said Pennsylvania. I no. 
No, but you said Wisconsin, but I'll take Wisconsin. They're, they're no, tough people. No, 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 no. I'm getting it right. I'm getting it. It's Pennsylvania. I knew that. It's right outside of Pittsburgh. I got friends of mine that are from that big money neighborhood you grew up in out there in Upper St. Clair. Yeah, right. You know, talk about growing up, Case. When, when you were growing up as a kid, I mean, your mom and dad, they were involved in every single thing you did. And uh, what an upbringing, right? I mean, it, it, nothing's perfect in the world, but what an upbringing. Yeah. Oh, man, Tom, it, there's not a day that goes by that I still don't talk to my mom. I talk to my mom every day, you know, and, and my and my dad, too. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the most blessed man in the world, the most fortunate person. The, the gratitude that I have for my upbringing in the house I grew up in and, and uh, you know, my family. You know, I grew up with one, my older sister, Beth, and we just grew up in a good good house. My dad was a hardworking guy. He was a chemical salesman. And, uh, you know, it just uh, traveled a lot. And, and like I said, my mom was around a lot and just a lot of just I'm very grateful for the house I grew up in, Tom. You know, my dad was a hardworking guy, kind of, you know, distilled that in me, you know, instilled that in me that, you know, you got to put in the work and if you want to get anywhere in life and just so many great lessons from that house uh, with my family. You know, one of the things, Sean, I think that stands out more than anything. And for those of us and I consider being blessed, honestly, and, and I don't say this. Um, with any reluctance whatsoever, what an honor and a pleasure and a blessing it is to to get to know you through all these many, many years. And you treat people the way everybody wants to be treated. Where did you see that as a kid? Because, I, I look, everybody has good moods and bad moods, but I, I don't think I've ever seen you in a bad mood. And it doesn't matter whether it's the king of kings or whether it's a guy who's showing up and working 50 hours a week uh, to clean up the stands in the ballpark every night. Everybody feels like you're, they're your friend because you treat them that way. Where'd that come from? You know what? My dad was always big on, you know, people like to be recognized. And, uh, you know, the sweetest sound anyone can hear is their name. And I just always felt like, you know, that, um, you know, I think my, my dad and, and my mom just instilling me like, hey, treat people the way you want to be treated. You know, everyone's the same. I, you know, I think a big thing is there's seven billion people in the world. No one's got, you know, everyone's got unique handprints, footprints. You know, nobody's got the same smile. So I was just kind of brought up that everyone's unique, everyone's special, and and all work is, you know, it, it, there's dignity in all work. My dad was big on that. Like, hey, listen, everyone that goes out and does their business, they show up to to do their work, to go home, support their family, or whatever. So. I don't know. I was just always raised that, like, treat people the way you want to be treated. It's not hard. Be kind, you know. And uh, I don't know. I'm grateful for that, too, because, you know, moving up the ladder and becoming a big league ball player, you know, there is there is temptation at times to think that you're better than any, better than other people because you're on TV or you can hit a baseball. Like, that is such BS. And, it, you know, it just it, it's, it's just not true. And uh, I was grateful that coming into that into that life, I just had the I had the boundaries and the, and the and the and the values to to know the difference. When you're playing in high school, obviously, uh, like everybody who makes it to the big leagues, you're a big high school star. Yet, and I've often felt like kids from the Midwest and you being from Pennsylvania frequently get overlooked in favor of guys like California or Texas or Florida, where they're playing a lot more games and so forth. I'm not going to say you and your dad and your mom were begging schools to get you into school, but you didn't have people beating down the door to get Sean Casey to come to play college baseball for him, right? 
Oh, we were basically begging. We were basically begging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Tommy, you know, man, it's like one of those things. And like, you know, for me, my story kind of goes back to my freshman year in high school. You know, another lesson from my dad. Like, I, I didn't really – I was the best player until about 14, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 for whatever it was. Guys started hitting puby before I did. I was a young 14. You know, I graduated high school when I was 17. So guys started passing me that freshman year. And my in my freshman year, I didn't, I didn't play much for the high school team. And I remember going home one day to my dad and saying, hey, dad, you know, do me a favor. If you go talk to the coach real quick, he doesn't know how good I've been these past few years, you know, hitting bombs at 12-year-old Little League. I don't know what the heck he's doing, but if you, I was wondering if you can go talk to him really quick and just let him know that I'm better than the kid that's playing ahead of me. And my dad, it was just so great looking back, especially being a father of four kids, you know, looking back, certain conversations that you have along the way. And you know, Tom, being a dad that, you know, um, could, could steer you in this direction or that direction. And my dad just said something to me that was great. He's like, listen, he goes, I'm not going to go talk to that coach. He's like, because you're obviously not glaringly better than the other kid, because if you were, you would play. And I was like, and so he's like, I'm not going to go talk to that coach, but there is a batting cage that just opened up in the town next to us. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> he's like, you need to start taking some accountability for who you are as a player. You need to start creating new habits for being the, the player that you want to become. So instead of me going to talk to the coach, why don't you go start talking to that batting cage there and start taking some swings every day and start getting better so that next year when you show up, you'll be glaringly better than that kid and you'll start for JV. And that was the lesson for me. Without that conversation, Tom, I don't even know if we're having this conversation because that started me on the journey of, oh, wow, you know, when you start to hit every day and you start to, and you start to put the work in, those marginal gains – of uh, be, make you become a, such a better player, your craft, you start to you know develop the skill and all of a sudden you start to become a better player. So that was the beginning of my journey. And as I got better, it was kind of funny. I started JV my sophomore year, then I started varsity my junior, senior year, was one of the best players in the area again. But you know me, Tom, I mean, gosh, I, I, I wasn't the, the flashiest guy out there. I wasn't the sexiest runner. You know, I think when people come out to see me play, they'd be like, oh, that guy can't run, he can't do this, can't do that. But I could hit and I've developed that, you know, I developed that, you know, skill and, and I worked on other things, but that hit skill I always had. And in my senior year, I had no college scholarship offers, not division one, two or three. It was so frustrating because mm. I was like, my dad always said, hey, luck is preparation meeting opportunity. One day you're going to get an opportunity. It would be a shame if you're not prepared. So I kind of always took it in my mind when I was hitting. And my senior year, I had no offers. And I remember my dad coming to me and he's like, listen. Instead of sitting here telling me you have no offers, what are you going to do about it? He's like, because you have to learn one lesson in life, Sean. No one's coming for help you. No one's here to really help you out. You've got to help yourself. And you've got to go tell, you got to sometimes go out and market yourself. So what I did was he's like, why don't you write 30 letters to 30 different schools you want to go to? So I did. I sat down and wrote Clemson. Penn State, Marietta, College of Worcester, John Carroll. I mean, I went to like I was Division Three, Division One. I. I was taking every I, all takers were in my my letters, Tommy. I I was thirty letters. Whoever wants to take Sean Casey, let's go. And the last the last um, when I was sending out these letters, my dad came upstairs with a brochure because back then there was no social media. It was like, hey, the, the Rich Richmond Spiders gave you a brochure last year at the Keystone State Games. Why don't you send them a letter too? So the last letter I wrote was University of Richmond. I sent it out. And, bro, all those swings, you know, added up to my senior year having a great year. And this one game, 
I went four for four with eight RBIs and four doubles. My coach, Jerry Malarkey, came up to me and said, hey, Case, you're having a great game. How many hits you have? Four hits. How many doubles? Four doubles, eight ribbies. He's like, that's great, man. He goes, you see the guy behind the backstop right there? That's Coach Mark McQueen. He's the, he's the, he's the, uh, the, um, the, the assistant coach at University of Richmond, drove six hours to come see you play. And it was incredible. After the, after the game, Coach McQueen said, I'm going to call you tomorrow, go home and talk to Coach Atkins, the, the head coach. And they offered me a $1,000 scholarship to go to University of Richmond. That's how I got there. And it's just incredible. It two incredible lessons. You've got to put the work in, and no one's coming to help you. You've got to help yourself. So you go to Richmond, and, and you win the, the college equivalent of the Triple Crown. I, I mean, you're the guy. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're known as one of the best players in the country. You're a second-round pick by the Cleveland Indians, right down the road from where you grew up in, uh, in Pittsburgh. You get traded to Cincinnati and, in 1999. And you're in a big league uniform. You're in a big league ballpark. It's, what, a day before the season opener? And what happened? It's, uh, it's, it's, it, no, it's three days in. Three days. It's, it's the third game of the year. Yeah, third game of the year. Jack McKeon had come up to me. I'd just been traded for Dave Berber three days earlier. So, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, Jack McKeon was like, hey, listen, tomorrow I'm going to start playing you every day. Uh, you know, you're going to get a start and you're going to start getting in the lineup because the first three games he kind of was let me get my feet wet, you know, being in Cincinnati and being in the big leagues, meeting the guys and stuff. And we were in batting practice and Pokey Reese was hitting in the in the cages and, you know, Barry Larkin's at short, Damian Jackson's at, at second base, and and, uh, and and Damian Jackson's like, hey, Case, you want to take some lives, uh, some balls live off the bat? I'm like, sure, I'll do that. You know, what does that entail? He's like, well, as soon as the ball's hit, we're going to turn it and we're going we're gonna to play it live. So Pokey hits a ground ball to, to Lark. Lark turns it to Damian Jackson. Damian Jackson turns to me. I catch it, and I throw it back to the bucket where, the, you know, the, there's usually a pitcher yep. in the bucket that takes the balls for, you know, batting practice. So I throw the ball back to the bucket. And as I did that, Pokey had already hit another ball. He hits it to Lark. Lark throws it to Damien. Damien throws it to me. I'm not looking. I'm looking straight. And the ironic thing is I have this huge net in front of me. And then, you know, I don't even I didn't really even hear anything. I just remember this ball hitting me as hard as it could right in the orbital bone. And I just went down. Yeah, I knew it was I knew it was I was in trouble. You know, my, my eye swelled up so fast. Turns out I had a, a big time orbital fracture. I was taken to the hospital. And, uh, you know, looking back, I think my career was really in jeopardy. I'm just so grateful, you know, that I had, the, uh, you know, the, the surgery I did. And Dr. Kremchek was so great during that. And, you know, it just uh, I was able to come back from it. But that, that you know, was a scary thing being there in Cincinnati and, and uh, you know, getting hit in the eye third day as a, in a, as a red. You know, you think about that for a second, and 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 you just said, you know, you, you're you're worried about your career. I'm sure as you're you're, you're down there on the ground, and they're telling you, you got to go into surgery. Yet you come back. I mean, yeah. in virtually almost no time at all. I, I think a lot of times, a lot of us are like, oh man, how in the world is that guy not playing? It's you know this or this or this or this. I mean, you've got a fractured orbital bone around your eye. Your right eye, which for a left-handed batter is the eye you're looking right out at the pitcher, right? And all of a sudden, yep. you were back in what? How long? Six weeks. Six weeks, yeah. I think. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. It was incredible. I don't know if I was ready to come back, Tom, but I was ready to get back to the big leagues. You know, I had to, I had a four-hour surgery because I had double vision in my eye. And, and uh, Dr. Bill Harrison, who was out in uh, California, sent me these drops because I, I had a, I damaged my iris. So my 
the sun was so bright, you know, um, when I had that, when I had that injury. So these drops helped me out, everything. But I came back six weeks later. I went down into rehab. I went six for 12. Jim Bowden calls me. He's like, you ready? I'm like, hell yeah, I'm ready. Kidding me? I've been ready. I've been ready my whole life. <laughs> so I go up there. I go up there, Tommy. We go to Montreal. We're facing Javi Vasquez. Bam. I drop a three for four, a couple doubles. I think I might have even gone deep. Three for four. I'm like, oh, I'm back. And then this is when the game humbles you and life will humble you, but the game of baseball will humble you at times. I proceed to go over my next 35. And I just remember thinking, man, I, 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 it was just such a struggle. They sent me down to AAA and I was, I'd never been so grateful to get sent down because I was like, okay, I, I got to get my swing together. I got to get my rhythm back, my timing. And uh, one thing I learned about the game of baseball, man, it, it, is, it is a tough game. And if you're not 100% ready to go, and you're, and you're not exactly where you need to be. It'll eat you up fast. You know, that 99 team, uh, despite the fact that you guys did not advance onto the playoffs and all that kind of thing, became truly one of the all-time fan favorite teams uh, in, in the history of the Cincinnati Reds franchise. You guys make the deep run, um, and, and, and you play great, and there's a, there's a really nice nucleus coming up. All of a sudden, the offseason, you trade for Ken Griffey, Junior, and the whole world is saying, "Look out for the Cincinnati Reds." At the time, he's the best player in the game, um, but it never panned out. And it's not—it's not to sit here and say it's to blame anybody, because certainly that's not the case. I mean, injuries are going to happen. But isn't it amazing when you think back and and wherever you were when you heard the team acquired Ken Griffey Jr. and the things you thought were going to happen, and they just never happened. Life's funny that way, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, you know, life life can take uh, can pivot on you really quick. You know, I think the biggest thing was, you know, we got Ken Griffey Jr. at the time. Junior was Michael Jordan. I mean, Michael of, of baseball. He was the best player in the game. I think he had just hit four fifty six home runs, had one hundred forty RBIs. You know, ridiculous numbers. He was the great one of the greatest players to ever play the game. So when we got when we got Junior, we were thinking, man, we got a great team here. We just won ninety six games in ninety nine. You know, we're getting we're getting the best player on the planet. And, uh, yeah, it just never really gelled. I, I think I, – I, and I, I don't think it was so much junior as it was our, our pitching. I just don't think – you know, we didn't we didn't do a good job in the front office of putting the money into into, into the team the way we should have, I think, as far as the pitching goes. Because you, you see, you can have Mike Trout, even Shohei Otani. If you don't have the pitching behind them, you ain't winning baseball games. So you can have Ken Griffey Jr., and the best players in the world. But if you don't have a nucleus of guys on the bump that can pitch, you're not going to win in this league. And I think that was a big part of it. You know, uh, I, I remember Joe Morgan, the late Joe Morgan, saying to me one time when we were having a conversation that one of the easiest – easy is not the right word. It, it, it's easier to be a great player on a bad team than it is to be a great player on a really good team. You agree with that? So Joe, Joe was saying it's it's Joe is saying that, that when the expectations are high and you've got this team that everybody thinks is going to be really, really good and all the pressure that comes along with that, that it's harder to be a great player. I may have misspoke this. It's harder to be a great player on a good team than it is to be a great player on a bad team. You agree with that? Mm, I, I, 
I, I can see what he's saying there. Yeah, because I think that when you're on a great team, I think expectations are a lot higher, right? And I think you even go back to those big red machine teams, and, you, you know, it's tough to pick out who the best player was when you got Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Tony Perez and Joe Morgan. I mean, obviously Joe was, you know, NL MVP and, you know, one of the best players out there. But I think the expectations as a great player when you're on a great team, I think they do go up. I think it is harder at times because I think when you're on not a great team, uh, and you're a great player, I don't know, like sometimes people aren't paying as much attention. But when you're on a great team and you're a great player, even though there's a bunch of great players, the expectations for you to, to be the one of the best are higher. So I, I, I agree with that. You go through the next nine seasons, you play in Cincinnati, you become one of the great players in the history of the franchise, baseball's oldest franchise. Uh, then you get a chance to play for your hometown team in Pittsburgh. Now, this is another interesting situation for a player. Barry Larkin did it his whole career. But playing for your hometown team, what was that like? Well, you know, it's funny. Growing up in Pittsburgh, I, all I wanted to do was play for the Pirates just because, you know, I grew up watching. My teams were really like, uh, you know, Bonds and Bonilla and Van Slyke and Jay Bell and all those teams, you know, Doug Drabeck. Um, so I was, you know, my dream was to play for the Pirates. So when I did in 2006, I was really excited. But I also, you know, it was fun to, it's fun to wear that uniform, but it's not fun when you're, your tail kicked in every night when you're not really on a great team. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for, for me, it was like, it was my ninth year in the big leagues. I really wanted to have a chance to go to the postseason at that point. You know, I think leaving Cincinnati was definitely a tough thing for me when it first happened, but it, looking back, you know, I really believe God's got a plan for all of it. So it turned out to be the three of the best years of my life going to going to the World Series that year in 06. But yeah, playing for the Pirates was a dream come true. And uh, but I also think at that stage of my career, I really wanted to play for a winner. You know, I, I called that series when you were playing in 2006, back in the uh, league championship series for Fox and playing for the Tigers. The, the Tigers have had a lot of lean years uh, over the last 20, 25, 30 years. They've had some good teams periodically, including the one you played on in 06. I got to tell you, and I'm curious if you agree, um, those are some of the best fans in the world when they've got a good team, the Detroit Tigers. That is a fun place to go and watch baseball when they're good. Did you feel that way? Incredible. Incredible, Tom. I'll tell you one story. Uh you know the, the the fans that came out. That city is, a, you know, they are a blue collar city, and they and we were a blue collar team with a blue collar manager and Jim Leland. I mean, you know, we kind of took on to his personality. But you know, I remember in um, the division series, I hit a ball off Randy Johnson. That that was a couple guys on. It was a big part of the game. I doubled off Johnson in the gap, and I get to second base. Joe Torrey's coming out to take out Randy Johnson. The it, it's absolute pandemonium. Because you know we realize, man, we're we're gonna we're about to beat the Yankees. Places on their feet, you can't see a fan because there's so many orange towels waving. It's just a it's a sea of orange towels. The music is playing so loud, and I remember looking. I remember this so vividly, looking back at the crowd, and just thinking, what what a fan base, what a city. Like this is incredible. The energy that those fans brought in that summer of '06. I mean, we'll go down in history as, 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 as some of the greatest fans you know, ever in the game. And like I said, those are some of the greatest memories I have. And the, one of the biggest reasons is because that city was so electric and th those fans backed us so much. 
it's funny for guys that get a chance to play in the postseason year after year after year and guys like Derek Jeter or Mariano Rivera on the mound and, 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 and how they elevate their game even to another level when they get on that big stage. And then there are some guys, and, and look, it's not sitting here picking on anybody, but they might only get a chance or two. Uh, and when they get in there, just things don't go the way they hope for. And, and they're remembered as a guy who, who couldn't get it done in the postseason. Your numbers in the postseason are staggering. 4-10 batting average. You go in 12 games with both Detroit and Boston. You drive in nine runs in the 12 games. I'm curious, Sean, when, when, when you had that chance, finally after a long time of not having that chance to get on the big stage, was there anything different in your mind as you showed up at the ballpark or when you walked to the plate in situations like that that was different in the playoffs uh, than it may have been during the regular season? Well, obviously, Tom, you know, being around, you know, postseason baseball, especially the World Series, you know, you can feel it in the air, you know, and, and it, you walk out there in batting practice that for game one and you're like, wow, does this feel different? <laughs> this feels so different. The adrenaline's a little more, you know, the excitement's a little more in the air. One thing that I knew was that I knew how I was very grateful to be there because it was my ninth year in the big leagues and I'd really never played in the postseason besides that one game in 1999 where we lost to the Mets with the Reds. So I'd never really experienced that. So I knew how special it was and I knew how hard it was to be there. And I just remember telling myself, I am going to cherish every moment I have here. I am going to I am going to be all gas, no break. I'm coming right for it. If I go down, I'm going down swinging and I'm coming out hard. And I just remember thinking like, you know, I'm ready for this. Like all my whole career, I'm ready. Uh, I've learned a process of an at-bat. I've learned the process of taking care of, of being able to um, play in front of uh, a ton of fans and pressure and all that stuff. And, it, you know, all those, all that experience that I had over those nine years helped me so much in that postseason to not let it get so big and just realize, no, this is special. You know, lean into the moment, get into the present moment, we'll go one pitch at a time. And uh, it just really worked out for me. I just in incredible to look back, you know, hitting two homers in the World Series. And I remember rounding the bases on my first one thinking, holy crap, I just homered <laughs> in the World Series. Like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is unbelievable. Like, I'm, I'm that kid, that 14-year-old kid that, like, that couldn't play on the freshman team. All those swings, you know, trying to find a college that wants me. And next thing you know, in 2006, I'm literally rounding the bases in St. Louis after homing for the Detroit Tigers in the World Series. Like, it still gives me chills to this day 16 years later. You said a minute ago, and, and, I, and I wanted to jump in there, when you said you had a double off Randy Johnson. Now, I had a chance to watch Randy Johnson. He was at the tail end there, so I'm going to beat you up for, for getting a double on Johnson. He was washed up by then anyway. But back in the heyday, <laughs> you were in a game where he struck out 20 batters. I had the privilege of watching that guy every five days. Uh, when he was at the top of his game, Cy Young, Cy Young, Cy Young, every single year. For a left-handed batter, can you put into words, and we all remember the John Cruck thing in the All-Star game, but as a left-handed batter, can you put into words what it was like to face Randy Johnson? <laughs> it was scary. <laughs> it was really scary. It was the most uncomfortable at bat. Uh, you know, th those at bats that I had against Randy Johnson were probably the most uncomfortable at bats, especially when he was in Arizona. I remember the first time facing him, it was just, he's 6'11. You know, I'm a lefty in there against him. He he's throwing behind me. He's got that three quarter release. 
you know, and he's throwing a hundred and then he's throwing like a 92, 93 mile an hour slider down and away. It's just, I'd never seen anything like it in my life when I first faced him. And uh, it was a great experience for me though, because it really taught me perspective. I remember the first day I faced him, he dominated me. I think I was 0 for 4 with two, two strikeouts. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I was so excited with Randy Johnson and intimidated. And after, the, after facing him, I thought to myself, if I have that same thought process for every pitcher I face in the big leagues, I'm going to be out of here soon. So it was like the Randy Johnson at bat where I was like, this is so uncomfortable and he's such a large human. But if I continue to think that, you know, these guys are, are, are better than me, then it's going to be in trouble. And I, I started to visualize guys from that point on. I said, as soon as they release the ball, it's a pitching machine. And when it comes in, I'm going to hammer it, you know. So thank you, Randy, for helping me change my mentality because he, so, he was so nasty that I'm like, I got to be better in my in my own thinking against some of these guys that are unbelievable. He was, you know, when 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 you at the MLB Network, when you guys replay some games and you watch some games that he pitched, and, and I mean, I was there for a ton of them, but I, I mean, I, I look at him now, and I just, it's mind-boggling to me what a phenomenal pitcher he was. I, 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 I want to move on now. A couple other things. Let's talk about baseball today. Just recently. They uh, decide to make some rule changes in the game, multiple rule changes in the game. How do you feel about those changes? I love them. I love them. I talked to Theo. Theo Epstein was part of, you know, uh, that, that group that, that put those together, and I was talking to him the other night. And, you know, they've done the research, you know, especially that pitch clock down in, uh, you know, down in the minor leagues. They've done the numbers. I mean, it almost cuts off 25, 30 minutes of the game. I think the game was – 244 or 248 was the average minor league game when they had the pitch clock. So I kind of like that because it speeds, you know, it, it, it speeds the game up. It makes it a little a little faster. And guys will have to get used to it. I'm sure that'll be an adjustment guys will have to make, but they will make that adjustment. Um, the other, you know, getting rid of the shift, Tom, like I, I, I kind of like that. I don't know, man. Like you've got two right fielders. you got all these mm -hmm. guys shifted to the one side. And I know guys say, well, just hit it the other way. It's not that, first off, it's not that easy just to hit it the other way. And there are certain guys that can make you shift back. But I do think like, you know, it, it, I do think it's like almost like uh, you know, the NFL with receivers on the line, whatever, you know, of having, you know, uh, you can't have so many guys on a certain side or yep. whatever. Like there's rules in every sport for that stuff. So I kind of like that the the, the um, fielders need to be on the other each side of second base, two fielders on each side of second base when the pitch is thrown. I personally like that. And the other one was the they made the bag 18 inches instead of 15 inches. Being a guy that broke my back one time at first base at a play when I was with the Pirates because it was so tight over there, I kind of like that extra three inches. I think it makes the game a little better for as far as stolen ba stolen bases goes and guys, you know, taking a shot because it's a little – uh, a little closer. So I like the rules that they did. What do you think, Tom? Like, well, I mean, you know, look, I, I, I really think, and, and Sean, you're making a living at it. I'm not anymore of broadcasting baseball games. Uh, hopefully we'll get a chance uh, one of these days again, but if not, if not, but you will be, uh, well, well, we'll see. But, um, um, you know, it, 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 the, the game right now breaks my heart in so many ways because you were playing going back to when I was announcing the Cubs games is when you first came up to the to the big leagues. And, and I just remember, uh, you know, the, the, those average time of games like you're talking about. It, it was 235. It was 240. It was 227. It was 217. 
you had a lot of those games. Even five to four, six to five, seven to five games were going 220, 230. And now, Sean, I look at, you know, I tell the story all the time about my son a couple of years ago. Um, I asked him, we're riding in the car, and I'm bringing him back from practice uh, one night from basketball pra- or, uh, uh, basketball workout, and the World Series was going on, and, the, and Game 7 was that night. And I asked him, and I said, hey, you going to watch Game 7 tonight? And he looks at me, he says, Dad, he says, the game doesn't start until 8.30, and the game's going to be three and a half hours long. I got school tomorrow. I can't stay up that late to watch the end, so what's the point? And I think that that is really – that's really been the norm now in baseball, and I think it's hurting the game. They have to do something to get it moving, don't you think? Yeah, I totally think, and I think that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to speed it up. They're trying to make it more exciting, and uh, yeah, I think the thing. I think these changes that they've they like I said, they've tested these in the minor leagues, and they work. So I think I think that's what they're trying to do: speed the game up, make it more interesting, especially for the younger generation. We got to make sure your kids and my kids are invested in this game and it's and it's and it's a product that they want to watch um I, now now when you talk about the pitch clock okay i mean if you want to go ahead and do it for us here on camera right now your whole routine in between pitches for crying out loud i mean if if, if mike hargrove is known as the human rain delay then then I don't know what the hell they're calling you because, I mean, every single – I mean, walk us through that whole routine. I always want to ask you, is that some OCD thing? I mean, I got OCD, and I, I mean, I get it. You got to do this and you got to do that. I get all that stuff. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, you know what? There was – that that whole routine – and I think if, if you told me I had to do it within, if I had 12 seconds, I could I could do it. I just would start doing it. I'd be stretching, doing everything I got to do. I'd do it in 12 <laughs> seconds. You know what I mean? So I know the batting gloves thing started back when I was hitting those, at, you know, every day in the cages. I hit so much. My batting gloves would get so wet. And my dad's like, we can only afford one pair of batting gloves. So I'm like, I got to just figure this out. So I used, I didn't feel comfortable unless my gloves were super tight. So I, that was the first thing. Then I used to lift up my back leg to pop my hip, and I, you know, I don't know. It just felt good when I did that. And then, you know, just the shoulder rolls tough, and I was a mess up there. But I, would, I was really thinking in my mind I was doing all that, but I was thinking about, all right, like, what did he just throw me? 93 on a sink. All right, he just just saw his curveball, right? I'm ready to go. I'm getting a deep breath, and here we go. So it, it was just a process that I just – it made me feel – comfortable it made me feel like i was ready to go when i did it but yeah it was it was uh it was interesting <laughs> where did the nickname the mayor come from a guy named bill moziello who's the head coach now at ohio state uh just got the job he yeah yeah they coach. introduced him on the field the other night right yeah man he's my, was my favorite coach one of my one of the best coaches i ever had ohio state is in good is in good hands with bill moziello i promise you that there's no doubt about it but he was uh you know he was oh I, you know you know me Tom I'm I'm coming in I'm talking to the to the to the concession ladies and I'm talking <laughs> to this guy and I'm talking to the little kids what's going on man you know and so Moziel was like man I've never seen anything like it bro he's like you're like the mayor man he's like it looks like you're lobbying for votes every person you talk to like you're lobbying for votes or something you know and I was like hey man I was like you know you got to be nice to people you know whatever so he called me the mayor that whole summer and I don't know how it got to the big leagues but. It somehow infiltrated one night. Carl Ravage on baseball tonight. Tonight, I, I was watching in the hotel after a, a big game, and I, I, I doubled in the gap. 
And he was like, the mayor with a big double. Or Sean Casey, they call him the mayor with a big double. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's it's infiltrating the big league. So <laughs> it initially started with Bill Mosiello in the Cape Cod League in 1994. And then all of a sudden, it was in the big leagues. And that's how it kind of started. And I think another thing was just me talking to guys at first base and, you know, jibber-jabbering and, and, you know, talking about the weather and their families and how you're swinging it, what your swing feel like and all that stuff. So I think it just carried on and it, it's uh, – it served me well the rest of my life, brother. <laughs> if there was ever one conversation over at first base with another player that you've never forgotten, for whatever reason, it could be something just completely ridiculous. It could be something where you kind of just raised your eyebrows and you were like, wow, anything like that? You know what? I think, I think the one conversation – There's I've had a ton of conversations, but the one conversation I had with Mark McGuire, man, because I was, it was so, I was so wide-eyed in 98. I was a rookie. It was – Sosa McGuire were going back and forth. McGuire was like a larger-than-life figure for anyone in sports. And, uh, you know, we were playing them daily. And I remember the first time we played them when I was up there, um, we intentionally walked them. And I remember thinking, oh, man, this is so great. I get a chance to talk to Mark McGuire. Because if I, I was hitting like 200 at the time, I was like, I'm about to get sent down. And at least I get a conversation with McGuire. I'll start to tell my kids one day. <laughs> so, so. So I I end up sneaking over and I'm, as I'm sneaking over, Jack McKeon's in the dugout like, "Hey, Case, play behind him." I'm like, "Oh, I don't want to play behind him. I want to talk to him." <laughs> so I'm like I'm like five feet behind him, but I come up. I'm like, "Hey, what's up, Big Mac?" And he turns to me. He's like, "How you doing, Sean?" I was like, "Yes, guy knows my name. Let's go." That <laughs> yeah, was incredible. So, <laughs> so the next at bat, Tom, we, we he he ends up walking again, and I'm like, I'm not even gonna look in the in the in the. I gotta get this conversation in. I'm not even going to look in the dugout. I know they're going to try and tell me. So I walk up as quick as I can. Hey, what's up, Big Mac, man? Hey, you're having a great summer, man. Can't believe you got 45 home runs. That's unbelievable. And it's only July. You know, he's like, oh, thanks, man. I was like, it's really cool. Your son's the bat boy, too. I've been watching that and reading Sports Illustrated. And he's like, oh, thanks a lot, Sean. You know, we're having this conversation. And I'm like, this is, and, and I literally just fell into the moment. Like, I forgot I was in the big leagues. I forgot I was the first baseman for the Reds. I'm like, how the hell did I get on this field having a conversation with Mark McGuire in the summer of 98, you know? And as we're talking, I guess Jack McKean is going nuts behind me, and so is the whole dugout. Now, because the game, I'm like, why the hell is the guy not pitching the ball? Well, they're not pitching because they're trying to get me to play behind McGuire, <laughs> but I'm so immersed in this unbelievable conversation with him. You know, so I, so McGuire's like, hey, man, he's like, I think they want to get your attention. So I turned to the dugout. And I was like, what the hell? Play behind him. Wake up. We've been yelling at you for the last three minutes. And I was like, oh, my bad. But it was the first time I didn't care. I was like, there's the conversation. If I get sent out of here, I got a conversation with Mark McGuire. I'll be telling Tom Brenneman in 30 years. 20 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> hey, 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 Sammy Sosa was in on that deal. And, and you know, I, I mean – I always found him, and and I don't care if people get wrapped up and you know, did he do this? Did he not do that? That that that's that's not for this time and place. But I always found him to be such a cool dude, and always had a smile on his face. I I always likened him the years I was there to almost a uh, a Latin American born player who was like a Sean Casey. He loved to talk to people, he loved to smile, and he loved to be around people. Yeah, oh, Sammy was having a great time. You're right, and and. It was a party around Sammy. So it was a party at Wrigley. And then when Sammy was there, you know, that place was going crazy for the years that he was hitting, you know, 60 home runs. And what he was doing was was absolutely amazing. But, yeah, Sammy's, you know, Sammy's personality was great for the game during that time, especially when they, in that chase at 98. 
you know, having that smile and doing the whole thing, you know, you know, in the dugout yeah. after he home, hit homers and stuff. So, you know, he was a great personality for the game. I'm curious, uh, you know, Sean, do you feel like baseball at this point in time needs another Sosa McGuire kind of shot in the arm? Because right now, Aaron Judge just hit 56 and 57 last night for the New York yeah. Yankees. And now, look, we don't live in New York. We're right here in Cincinnati where the team's not very good, and there aren't a lot of people right now following baseball, and they're more interested in college football and the NFL. But, but, but nobody talks about Aaron Judge. I think everywhere they were talking about Sammy and McGuire back in those days. Does baseball right. need something like that to happen? I, well, I think so. I think also another thing that's happening is Shohei Otani's happening too. Like, you know, we've never seen a guy do what he's doing with – you know, 34, you know, he's third in the league in home runs, and he's going to be top five in the Cy Young, young race. But I think that Aaron Judge is is special because, you know, whether you like it or not, at the end of the day, you know, the, the home run record is still connected to three guys with PEDs and McGuire, Sosa, and Bonds. And, you know, having that number 61, 62 was always like the big number. And I think having Judge doing it, doing it this summer in a Yankee uniform, He's 20 home runs ahead of the next guy in the league. So, you know, it's really been a historic year for him. The Yankees aren't where they're at without him. But I think that chase for 61-62 is becoming, you know, exciting again for fans uh, in baseball. And I do think anything like this that happens in the game uh, is really good for the game of baseball. All right, last thing I want to ask you about. Um, uh, your, both of your sons uh, have had a chance to be really good baseball players, and they continued playing baseball out of high, uh, after high school and so forth. And, and look, baseball is littered with guys who had sons that were really good players, whether they were major league players or just good amateur players, whatever the case might be. Um, when, when you were sitting there as a dad, when you got to watch them, uh, and watch them both in high school and in college. Um, did you feel pressure for them because their dad was Sean Casey? Did they feel pressure because their dad was Sean Casey? Uh, you know what? Is there, a, is there a certain pressure? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there is. But, like, I didn't raise them that way. You know, I didn't I didn't raise my kids. Like, you got to play baseball, like, or, you know, whatever. I, I just – I think they both ended up playing college baseball because they were around it a lot. They put the work in. They worked really hard at it. You know, that was a lot of the things that I would say is like, you know, repetition is a mother of skill. You're not going to get good in something unless you put the work in, and they both did. So I think for me, like, and do they get the Sean Casey stuff? And you're, yeah, yeah, I'm like, yeah. But I said at the end of the day, here's the bottom line. Like, I was, I'm a great father. I love you guys to death. Yeah, I want you guys to do whatever you want to do in life, but I want you to do it well, and I want you to work hard at it. I want you to put the time in, and I want you to develop skills. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's their life. You know, it's not my life. My life was my life. My story is my story. And, like, I think that's one thing that's so unique is, like, our kids are their own unique beings, and uh, I'm just very proud of them as, as the men they're becoming more than anything. Well, Case, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I know you got to get to work. I mean, you've got that fancy green room behind you. It almost looks like there's a bed in there. I don't know if you slept back. I don't know if those are sheets or what the hell that is back there. I got a dishwasher. I just did the dishes. I got mayhem here, okay? I'm, you got a, I I mean, you're a big dishwasher. league operator. You got a kitchen and a, and a, fr a full fridge, stacked up fridge in a hotel room. That's when you know you're really a big leaguer, not doubling off Randy Johnson. 
I'm at the residence inn. I'm not like Frank. What do you think? I'm at like some nice high rise. I'm at the residence inn in Secaucus, New Jersey, right now. Well, you're not used to <laughs> residence inns. I can tell you that. Although I think they're nice places. All right, they brother. Thanks nice. for they're your nice. time today, Case. God bless you, man. Great having you. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Tommy, so good to see you, my man. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person at some point. And uh, tell your pops I said hi. Uh, the old curmudgeon. Hi, old curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Casey, kind enough to join us. Thank you so much, Sean. And, uh, boy, boy, I mean, the, the guy's the best. I mean, what else are you going to say? I, I've never met an athlete. I'm not sure I've ever met a person. And I, I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. I don't know if I've ever met a person like that guy. He's in a good mood all the time. He treats people just... He's the best. We are back with more on Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers in a moment. The time is now. Football season is back here in the Queen City and week one, St. X versus Lakota West. EJE train here with Chatterbox. It's about to go down. It's our kickoff of our official tour. Every Friday night, you'll see us. Let's go. one I mean I couldn't have asked for a better first one because Coda West struggling a lot throughout the first uh, first half and beginning of second half and then big time it's a party it's a party it's a party I know one thing ain't nobody does this better than us facts yeah this uh, atmosphere was insane show was on point everybody had a great time for the first one too bringing people together big shout out to everybody tonight that worked hard from chatterbox and everywhere else put on a great show this dude's legit and he's sweating so you know he's legit <laughs> all 
Hope you enjoyed that interview with Sean Casey. I know we did, and uh, he is the best. And, and, and speaking of the best, I want to thank so many of you out there watching on YouTube. Uh, let your friends know or send it out on social media. It, 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 I don't care if you have one follower, 1,000 followers, 40,000 followers, whatever. Uh, and let them know about our show, 10 a.m. to noon, uh, every day, streaming on YouTube and uh, slash chatterbox sports and we're also on uh, facebook and social media tom brenneman tv twitter instagram facebook tom brenneman tv uh some of our comments today from those watching let's see here they're watching down in south texas philip Thank you very much. Says he's looking forward to seeing the Bengals take out their frustration on the Cowboys this weekend. That's good stuff. Richard says, issue number one with Major League Baseball, big markets versus small markets. The NFL has leveled the playing field. Why can't Major League Baseball? Richard, I can answer that in a nutshell with one word, union. Uh, There are pros and cons to the Major League Baseball Players Union. If you are a member of that union, it is the greatest thing of all time. They are the best union in the world. And I am not exaggerating when I say that. If you max out on the Major League Baseball Players Union, uh, you get 10 years in the big leagues, and that can come in the form of wearing a uniform as a player, or you can get service time as a coach. But if that happens, from the time you hit retirement age, you get roughly anywhere from fifteen dollars to $20,000 per month, per month for the rest of your life and your spouse's life. In the NFL, there are players, and I worked with one of them, Chris Spielman, who is one of the great players of all time at Ohio State, five, six, seven-time pro bowler in the NFL. Um, there are guys in his generation, the 80s, that whole kind of thing, 70s, 80s, even going back before that, guys that are getting like three, $400 a month. I mean, the current players' union has not taken care of these players in the NFL. Baseball has. Uh, and, and baseball will never agree, I don't think, although I think it would behoove the sport overall to come up with a revenue-sharing plan and um, a salary cap you, you say those two words, salary cap, to anybody involved uh, in the players' union at Major League Baseball or agents, that's immediately a deal breaker. Uh, Richard says, uh, Devin Mezorosco, hurt just about all the time. That was in reference to our conversation with Marty Brenneman about Tyler Stevenson. Um, Many agreed with Marty about uh, hit the ball the other way. Sean Casey loves the shift. I love uh, getting rid of the shift. I love getting rid of the shift. I love it. And you heard Casey say it. It, it. It's not easy when a guy's throwing 95 to 100 miles an hour to just make yourself hit the ball the other way. I think it leads to more action, and that's what, uh, what baseball is missing. Uh, Cincy Raz. Um, watching our show today thank you chris says love marty miss him on the air miss him on the air steve has been with us since day one says he's really enjoying the show says sean casey for president jerry says great interview with sean casey uh, and some others 619 bengals fan says uh, take the shift out 
and bring in robotic umpires. I like having the umpires. I like all the rule changes they had, uh, but the bottom line is they better speed up the game and the pace of play. At the end of the day, point that was made about issue number one, leveling the playing field, that is the biggest issue. Unfortunately, it is not one that right now baseball feels like it's in a state or in a position where it needs to change that. And it's very short-sighted on the player's part. From their perspective, I understand their perspective. Okay, I get it totally, and you would too if you were a member of the union. But, for the, but, but, but in the long game, look at the success of the sport and to becoming, quite honestly, a viable option for people's time. Time is the most precious thing we have. And a lot of people are not devoting their time to watching or following Major League Baseball. All right, our uh, producers, outstanding producers, most of the time, wow. of the Oof. program, Casey McAllister and uh, Brandon Seho. Your thoughts, gentlemen, uh, on Sean Casey today and Marty Brenneman, if any? I loved having Sean on. I love, I love Marty, too, but it was cool. I talked to him a little bit after the interview. He's Sean a, you're talking about or yeah, Marty? Yeah, Sean. Okay. The mayor. We, uh, we talked about how personable he is, how much he talks to fans, all of that. He used to his his wife used to play sand volleyball against my mom on the west side wow. at nights at Columbus, and I asked him I'm like, I just want to make sure I have this story straight, and it wasn't me just you know making it up in my own head. And he said, No, we used to, me and Jason Larue would go over there all the time, watch sand volleyball, and my wife played in that. So he he signed like an index card for me when I was a kid, which is uh, just you great. don't have that anymore though. I don't think so. No, hmm. Casey. Yeah, uh, I'm just going to go with the rule changes for baseball. I mean, for someone that's not as invested, uh, everyone knows in the office, I'm not big into baseball, but I want to be. And anything that can make that better, whether that's, you know, you already mentioned the salary cap, just throw it out the window, yep. but got to make something to where even the playing field, speeding up the game, whatever, whatever works. I mean, I, I know these changes are working in the minor leagues, right? Is that correct? Um, so, yes. So let, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that these changes will progress the game forward. Um, I still think there's probably some work that needs to be done, but this is a good step in the right direction. Yeah, I, th I think it is too. I think it is too. Um, okay. It's time for our Cherry on Top, presented by United Dairy Farmers. I, I don't know what this is. Apparently, it's in the streets of New York City, and some uh, kids... Uh, are out there with, with a basketball. And so I'm going to shut up and let's play it and let's all together watch and listen. Check it out. Hey, uh, hey, hey, I'll bet you I hit it six What's up? What's up? Six Where are you going to hit it at? Where? Right here. Where are you throwing it? Right. Over the hole. Oh, oh, I want to see this. Hold up. Let me see. Let me see this. Oh! <laughs> the guy was run over and killed 30 seconds later. Jeez. Oh, jeez. <laughs> he wasn't. That was a no. joke. Bad joke. That was it, an unbelievable shot. It was. That you was, think that was staged? Like, that's too I don't know. But you, look, I don't care if it's staged or not. I mean, the one cat to begin with, it has to be staged because the one guy 
looks like he's standing there on his phone in the street, and all of a sudden he's Starts able to pick up a basketball ball with or... his feet and flip it up to the guy. Okay, so the whole thing's staged. But the bottom line is the guy made the shot. <laughs> he made the shot, and surprisingly enough, he was able to like dodge a few cars and, you know. Yeah, I don't understand running athlete. into the street. I don't, I don't get that part at the end. But. Well, he's pro- in New York, he's probably running away from somebody who's probably trying to hold him up. <laughs> I mean, the way that town's going these days. Oof. Ugh. Good Lord. That was cool. So that was our cherry on top. We, we, we got all kinds of things working tomorrow. Um, we're hoping to have Coach Martin from Miami of Ohio football. This guy's done a great job uh, to talk a little bit about the upcoming game on Saturday between UC and Miami. Uh, James Rapine will be joining the show right out of the gate to talk about the Bengalis and the uh, Dallas Cowboys and all that's going on down there. Um, Tracy Jones. So I, I want to send out a couple of get well wishes before we get out of here today. I told you yesterday uh, that Tracy had some kind of a fall, an accident, um, and, and really, really inju- is injured, seriously injured. Not where he's in a hospital now. He had to go to the hospital. And um, uh, a lot of injuries to his neck, his nose, his head, his body. Um, We hope and pray that he's doing better. He sent me a text a little while ago. Today's a lot better than yesterday. He said yesterday was awful. Uh, But he says he's going to join the show tomorrow. So uh, we thank him for that. And if if for some reason he can't, we we certainly get that he can't. And also want to send out uh, get well wishes to Chris Collinsworth. He was scheduled to be our big interview today. We thank Sean Casey for joining us at virtually the last second to, to give us his time to do that today. Uh, but Chris, you may have noticed, um, he sounded great in that Thursday night game uh, to kick off the NFL season, um, the, the game out in L.A. against the Bills. And then on Sunday, he comes back to do a second game in four days. And I got to tell you, that's tough in, in terms of preparation. I mean, I know it looks easy. He makes it look easy. It's not easy getting ready for two different games in the span of four days. The amount of work that it takes to get prepped and ready to go like Chris gets prepped and ready to go is a lot. But he didn't sound good right from the get-go, uh, that Tampa Bay-Dallas game. And I shot him a, a message and said, hey, you all right? And he said, look, I'm not allowed to talk for a week. So can I take a rain check? Uh, naturally, the answer is yes there. And so he'll be joining us in two weeks. Our big interview next week is going to be with Barry Alvarez. I think you're going to find him to be a, a, a fascinating uh, interview for multiple reasons. Um, he was a defensive coordinator under Lou Holtz when Notre Dame won the national championship. He's offered the job at Wisconsin as the head coach. Everybody and his brother told him, don't take the job. There's not a worse football program in America than Wisconsin. He took it anyway, and he built it into one of the best programs in all of college football he won three rose bowls i think there's only two guys that can say that on the planet i think it's uh, him and john robinson if i'm not mistaken um i don't think woody hayes won three rose bowls i could be wrong on that john robinson did um and barry alvarez did um and and, and now after being the, the coach at wisconsin forever he became the athletic director at wisconsin for a long long time steps down and then kevin warren commissioner of the Big Ten, smart enough to say, man, I could use the help of somebody who's been around uh, the conference for a long, long time, uh, not only as a coach, but as an AD. 
And so that's what he's doing now. And we'll discuss everything going on uh, in the college landscape from NIL to um, uh, conference realignment. The Big Ten just bringing in, of course, USC and UCLA. Uh, is there more expansion on the horizon? So look forward to that next Wednesday. But tomorrow, we look forward to having you join us then. So for all of us, for Casey McAllister and Brandon Seho, our producers, our executive producer, Trace Fowler, and the whole crew here at Chatterbox Sports, I'm Tom Brenneman. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day.